The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It's Tuesday the 2nd of February, everybody. You're watching Squat Box with Karen, Jeff and myself, Steve. So these are your headlines. The turnaround trade, equities bounce back from their worst week since October as all 11 S&P sectors gain. Futures pointing to further strength ahead of earnings from the likes of Pfizer, ExxonMobil, Amazon and Alphabet. Silver just easing back a little bit, having soared to an eight-year high in yesterday's session with deliveries of coins and bars, well, reportedly tightening. Uh, but there's mystery in the moves, with several popular Wall Street bets post insisting the group's not behind the trade. U.S. President Joe Biden will push ahead with his $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, rejecting calls for a scaled-down bill. But Republicans remain optimistic that they'll reach a compromise. I am hopeful that we can once again pass a sixth bipartisan COVID relief package. The blame game intensifies in Europe over its vaccine rollout, with EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen blaming Commission Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis for the U-turn on vaccine export controls. And crude oil climbs as major producers show they can stick to their cuts. This as Baker Hughes CEO Lorenzo Simonelli says, uh, CM, or tells CNBC exclusively, energy, energy demand will recover this year as the industry adjusts to a new team at the White House. I'm optimistic, again, that it's, it's going to be a gradual change and we'll work with the administration accordingly, as we've done with others in the past. Investors parking some of the recent jitters aside uh, as they were watching that retail frenzy uh, play last week. And markets in Monday session just a little bit more confident as they began the trading week. So putting that red ink uh, back firmly behind them, focusing on some of the stimulus and uh, the fiscal, the, the monetary support and the backdrop. And don't forget, again, we've got a very strong a week, uh, a calendar of earnings coming out. And some of the big movers were those names. For instance, Amazon, a big driver for the S&P and NASDAQ. It reports after to the close today. This is an all-important holiday quarter for Amazon, so a uh, huge focus on uh, the numbers from that company. So you can see the market rallying and tech-heavy stocks very much in focus, 2.5% bounce on the Nasdaq, so a fairly strong outing. And let's just take a look at those big U.S. tech names, and you can see Microsoft also playing ball too. One of the strongest trades, a 3.3% pop for that stock, but in terms of the ones to watch, it was Amazon, based on the earnings coming out later on today. 4.2% higher, so it was being bid up in the lead-up to the earnings. Also on the ticket today, later on uh, after the bell, Alphabet reporting numbers. So worth watching that. But you can see investors placing some early bets on the numbers they're likely to see. Well, let's talk about that retail frenzy. We noticed Friday that uh, investors had just stepped away a little bit from GameStop and were refocusing on other components of the market. Silver and the world's leading ETF being one of it. 
We saw a lot of early action in the trade yesterday, right here in Europe, around some of the big silver producers and silver traders. And in session uh, on the spot price, we saw a 9.3% pop on settlement. That was the best trading day since March 2009, when silver came to 13% then. But uh, very strong performance. You can see morning session just coming off some of those highs. We're down about 1.1%. Now, Steve, you're just looking at some of the earnings. Yeah, look, we have... We have um, two announcements from Siemens Energy, and I, and I think they're absolutely fascinating. I'm delighted to say we've got the CEO waiting in the wings. So I'll just tell you briefly, uh, revenue over at the group, uh, they're talking about a solid start to the year, up 2.6% to 6.5 billion uh, euros as well. Orders were 7.4 billion euros, substantially below the high base of comparison the first quarter of the prior year, driven by a sharp decline. And this is very interesting. We'll get to the CEO in this in a moment. Uh, at Siemens Gamesa, renewable energy. Now, the other announcement is the measures they are taking in place to improve their efficiency. And they're talking, I'm afraid to say, about 7,800 jobs in gas and power segment being reduced by 2025. I don't need to go on because we've got Christian waiting in the wings. So I do want to get to him straight away. So Christian Brook, who's the CEO of Siemens Energy. Look, sir, we really appreciate you joining us at the best of times, let alone when you've got such hard news for some employees as well. So we do appreciate your time, sir. Look, I'm very interested in the whole story. So why don't you just give us a holistic view of what's going on at the moment and specifically uh, why Gamesa Renewable Energy is, is proving such a hard area at the moment. Yeah, thank you very much and thanks for having me uh, today in the morning. Uh, yeah, we are um, doing what we announced last year on our Capital Market Day in, back in September. So we are in the midst of the energy transformation and we really on the one hand have uh, obviously growing areas like Siemens Gamesa, like transmission at the same time are in a transformation to tackle also the cost challenges and the profitability challenges we have in our conventional business. And uh, since we are obviously a, more or less a mirror of the energy world, it's now always keeping the balance. On the one hand, really driving uh, the growth part and at the same time improving the areas uh, where we see more challenges in the market like oil and gas. And this is why also today uh, we announced uh, obviously also an uh, efficiency program and uh, which also will touch workforce. And uh, as you said, I mean, we are targeting to reduce by 2025 by uh, 7,800 uh, employees, the workforce. And this will be one measure to be do done. And at the same time, obviously, we are trying to invest and improve into new areas and new technologies also then to capture the growth for the future. So we understand the need to continue to move towards these new sources of energy, these uh, cleaner sources of energy. But do you think there's a mismatch at this time between the new capacity coming on and the needs to continue to run oil and gas facilities? Um, there is a, a need, obviously, for huge investment into new capacity in these areas. But that's going to take time, isn't it? Absolutely. And let me be crystal clear. I do believe in interim solutions and I do believe uh, in the need for natural gas in an uh, electricity generation, which we have globally for a long time to come. And this is why we are doing these measures. We want to be able, obviously, to continue in this business and earn money. And at the moment, uh, with regard to the overall capacities we have globally, not only us, but also competition, uh, we take these measures to have a profitable business in the conventional area, which will be needed. And as much as I uh, appreciate really the opportunities we have by 
growing in, for example, at wind with Siemens Gamesa. At the same time, I'm strongly convinced we do need an underlying backbone of conventional power generation, for example, based on natural gas. Well, let me ask you then, um, obviously, you're taking this decision at the moment because you see these structural shifts. But we're in a cycle at the moment where there's a real lack of visibility about underlying demand, given the pandemic lockdowns and the ongoing challenge of combating this illness. Um, To what extent have you factored that into the decisions that you've made in this quarter's numbers? Yeah, the developments, what we are seeing, obviously, are um, independent, really, of, of COVID and the current pandemic. I mean, we really take a, a mid- and long-term picture. Otherwise, it, it would not be sensible to do these measures. And obviously, the general transformation in the energy industry is something which, let's say, we, we can relatively good see at the moment. Uh, we see also, obviously, where we are stabilizing and we're not irrespective of the pandemic. The short-term impacts, what we have from the pandemic, for example, the more restrictions we have in our service business, are not taken to, into account in this regard. It's really about the mid- and long-term picture. Where do we below, believe the industry is going in terms of the general um, distribution and portfolio of different uh, energy technologies? And this is what has been driving us by defining this program. And this is also now what we are discussing at the different sites, at the different parts of our organization starting yesterday. Uh, Christian, it's early days for the Biden administration, but uh, we have seen uh, the the, uh, moves to to sign back up to the Paris Climate Accord. What mood music do you expect for the first 100 days for the Biden administration? Will it translate to, to any increase or acceleration in contracts? Yeah, it's obviously something uh, where we, uh, let's say, see or expect uh, definitely also on the on the renewable side, on the wind side, certain um, strengthening also of the market for us. I mean, this is what Siemens Gamesa is looking into. Uh, we are, I would say, relatively optimistic that we also can grow in the U.S. for us, um, but we will have to see what's coming now. But in, in this regard, obviously, we are confident uh, really in the future, particular of our wind business. Um, just one more quick question, really. And uh, in terms of what you can expect from uh, COP26, I know that countries have been told to sharpen up their NDCs going forward as well. Do you think this is the year? I keep hearing from the industry, this is the year when things take a leap forward as well. Christian, do you share that, uh, that view in terms of the energy transition? What I do definitely see at the moment uh, is a movement which really started a little bit off with COVID, but also obviously also with COP26 is now probably progressing, is really an attitude of collaboration in the industry. And uh, this is really a change to identify jointly solutions which can tackle the challenges we have ahead of us in the energy industry. Uh, Different companies working together, um, really finding new solutions and and really addressing it also not only from a technology side, but also from a business model and financing side. So they're coming a lot of things together. There is a momentum at the moment in the industry to tackle these challenges. And in this regard, uh, I'm very positive that we are really as an industry on the right track to tackle the challenges what we all have ahead of us. Christian, we know you've got a hard out now, so we'll let you go. But we want a longer chat at some stage. Uh, Fascinating to hear what you have to say, sir. So thank you. Christian Bruch, who is the CEO of Siemens Energy. 
Uh, right, let's move on. Online brokerage Robinhood has raised $2.4 billion. It's the second cash injection within a week, bringing the total to $3.4 billion since last Thursday. Reuters is reporting the company is in talks to borrow another $1 billion. The popular investment app needs cash to fulfill a frenzy of orders on heavily shorted stocks such as GameStop and AMC. Now, the Robinhood CEO, Vlad Tenev, said the company was forced to restrict trading after a clearinghouse demanded $3 billion of margin deposits. Remember, I talked to you about this last week. More volatility, more movement, you get what's called variation margin. You need to watch this show. We do tell you this stuff. Although the company has negotiated the sum uh, down to $700 million, the flood of transactions on its platform continues to stretch resources. Now, GameStop shares continue to fall in extended trading uh, after ending Monday's session nearly 31% lower. GameStop has been at the center uh, of the retail trading frenzy with the investor community Wall Street Bets on Reddit trying to squeeze hedge funds who are shorting the stock. The stock remains up over just over a thousand percent year to date. Right. So the spot price of silver is retreating this morning. It's a percent lower. It's retreating, though, after touching an eight-year high. Now, the spark for this silver rally, apparently, and I say apparently, seems to have come from uh, Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum, although many of its 8 million subscribers are also arguing against the asset class. One thing you will find if you go on these boards, they do argue a lot, and it's, there's lots of profanity as well, so it's not for the kids. Uh, Derivatives Exchange CME said it would raise the margin requirements. Again, see what I said about margin? Listen to what we say. Sometimes it's worth listening to. Uh, raise margin requirements on silver futures to 18% to make it harder for small players to trade. Right, well, let's get to uh, Oliver Brennan, who is Head of Research and Macro Strategy at TS Lombard. Uh, Oliver, uh, very good to see you today. Look, um, you guys, it's safe to say you've been bearish for a long time as well. Um, you remain very concerned, if I looked at your, your latest note, the bubble alert from the 27th of January. So why are you particularly concerned now, as opposed to your, your level of concern throughout the last year? Morning, hi. Yeah, it's it's all about the, the the state of the market, and as you described just then, there's there's a lot of signs of excess enthusiasm, of uh, of exuberance, if you like, and the nature of a bubble tends to be quite similar when there are several bubbles in, in in the past. There's this there's this period of institutional investors getting involved, then a period of public getting involved, and when the public gets involved, the bubble really starts to take off and near the top of the bubble, you get these greed phases and then this delusional phase when people think, OK, this is it. This is a new paradigm. The market's going to the moon. And then that's really when when the market starts to roll over. Um, and when we're in this kind of phase, it's hard to identify precisely where. And there's always the caution because the final stages of a bubble, especially the last year, the last few months, often come with the best returns um, at the end of the rally, so you have to you have to square these these um, these dynamics together. But we're seeing we're seeing signs that there's that we're on the cusp of what could become quite irrational behaviour. My, my, my problem, Oliver, and it's not that I disagree with you that we are in extended territory. It's just the fact that any client of yours who got involved in your views would have lost vast amounts of money over the last year. And I'll give you an example. On tw- in late April, we had Charles Dumas on, who was stunningly bearish at the bottom of the market. Then we had the same Mr. Dumas on, who's one of your colleagues, in June as well. And he told me then that the S&P was going to fall 20%. 
Now, actually, since that interview in the middle of June, the S&P's rallied 22%. So if the viewers had taken an extreme view to the downside, they're actually 42% offside on your view. It's not that I disagree that we're in frothy territory. It's the fact that backing your view has cost our viewers a lot of money, potentially. Yeah, that's a that's a perfectly fair criticism. And um, and what I would what I would say in return is that our view on the S&P was not the view on all asset classes. So particularly in June, when the fiscal stimulus had spread across the market and we were seeing the signs of the recovery, we were taking a, a more positive view on other other equity markets and other other asset classes. So we thought that credit, for example, was extremely cheap. So while we had this bearish stance on the S&P, we were still positive, for example, Asian equities, um, credit instruments and so on. So sure, if you just took the S&P view, you would be underwater here. But if you took the holistic view of, of, of where we were standing across the market, then we were we were a lot more neutral, I would say. We were, we were still very negative on the S&P, but a lot more neutral overall. Um, and now, you know, we, we, we always see these warnings when um, um, funds try to advertise on TV, past performances, no guide to future results. And what I would say now is, of course, there are, you, know, you can't get everything right all the time. And yes, the, the S&P view back in April, May and June was on the wrong side and we've been proved wrong about that. But what does the market look like now? Um, so none of what I'm saying is to do with valuations, for example. None of what I'm saying is to do with the underlying economic backdrop. What I'm saying is that um, there are signs that the market is in a bubble. And there are signs, for example, with high and rising margin debt, that this bubble could become too exuberant. And when that begins to happen, you need to start thinking about, about reducing risk and taking profits rather than thinking about adding near the top. Oliver, the problem is what pricks the bubble. And typically in the past, it has been central banks. Uh, we've had even recent episodes of taper tantrums in uh, recent years in reaction to some of the stimulus being taken away. It doesn't feel as though we're at that point yet. And we're talking, talking about lockdowns that are still required, a fiscal stimulus now in the United States uh, still needed to, to drag the US out of the, the economic hole it's been in. So what would prick this bubble this time round? Yeah, very good question. And you're right, the last time um, in 2018, it was certainly the, the, the Federal Reserve when, when it kept hiking interest rates and real interest rates turned, turned positive. But then what, what put the bubble on, on Black Monday, what put the bubble at the top of the dot-com? Um, it's always obvious in hindsight, but it's never obvious in foresight. So, so this is the problem with investing in bubbles. Like I say, you don't want to be uninvested because the, the final stages are often the periods when there are the most positive returns. But you, you also want to be watching out for these, these signs. So, for example, as, as I said about margin debt, when margin debt increases at this kind of pace, or slightly more rapid pace, um, it tends to correspond to negative next year returns. So I can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that if margin debt continue to increase rapidly, then you're probably going to get flat returns at best over the next 12 months. But what does that mean over the next two months? I don't know. Um, and what is the what is the, the brick of the bubble? It could it could indeed be margin debt. It could be that hedge funds have looked at the uh, Wall Street bets forum and thought it's time to take take risk off. It could be none of these things. It could be a virus mutation. It could be a policy mistake um, from from a central bank. I, I agree that's extremely unlikely at the moment, but. We'll, we'll know once it's happened, but at the moment, the central banks are doing their darndest to be behind 
the curve. So it's extremely unlikely that there would be any any policy tightening that would prick this bubble. Oliver, just very briefly, how useful is it to watch the bond market at the moment for clues as to what comes next? I mean, one of the challenges, as you look at the Treasury uh, spread at the moment, we're actually 143 basis points or thereabouts, which is the widest we've been since 2016. If anything, that just encourages this idea of the reflation trade emerging in strength later in the year, not something that you necessarily want to step away from. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's all about what's, what's warranted and what's not. Because as you say, higher treasury yields tend to take place during a reflation period. And that also happens during a period when earnings are rising. So high treasury yields by themselves don't tell us that, that the market's going to roll over. They certainly tell us that, that PE ratio should fall, but that's just as likely because earnings are rising uh, as prices fall. So what we want to look out for is a, is an unwarranted tightening. So that's the kind of thing that you'd see in money markets, for example, if, if um, money markets start to widen. We start to see that in, in longer bonds if the speed of the rise in bond yields got too fast. So again, central banks being intentionally behind the curve here and central banks having enough ammunition means that this kind of thing is unlikely to happen at this in this cycle. So it's unlikely that the, that the Treasury market is going to trigger a collapse. But like I say, with, with the enthusiasm at such a stage and with leverage borrowing at such high levels, um, it could be something very unexpected that, that makes people start to delever when this, when this bubble may burst. Oliver, we've got to leave it there. Um, but I just want to thank you, actually, because um, I looked at you know, this interview coming up and I did think of Charles and those interviews we had last year. And I think you've taken it on the chin, the fact that you've been wrong so far, but actually you're sticking with you. So I do appreciate you coming on uh, and we'll watch uh, for those uh, potential bubble op- 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 opportunities, I should say. Uh, Oliver Brennan, thank you very much indeed. Head of research and macro strategy at TS Lombard. Plenty coming up on the show, uh, including the vaccine blame game, which continues in Brussels as the bloc abandons its export ban. We'll talk about that next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Right, so we have uh, a continuation of this European story, the AstraZeneca stroke other drug rollouts of the vaccines. Ursula von der Leyen asked if worried uh, that Italy's uh, political crisis could delay recovery plans, says working hard there, there are difficulties. She's talking to an Italian newspaper, I believe. Uh, confirms the target to vaccinate 70% of adult population in Europe by the summer. Seems a stretch, doesn't it? 
Um, 300 million doses of Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca coming in Europe in the second quarter. And if approved, further 80 million J&Js, that's Johnson Johnson and CureVac uh, vials as well, according to the paper. Again, I think she's talking to one of the Italian papers as well. Very interesting. Italian papers actually are being used a lot in this battle uh, of vaccinations. Of course, La Repubblica and I think several others were used by Pascal Sorio for that. Did you read that lengthy refute to the EU? I hope you did, um, because it was very, very interesting there as well. Anyway, von der Leyen says AstraZeneca will provide in the coming two months 40 million vaccine doses i think we knew that actually we'll expect to make up for the cut scene in the first quarter well the blame game over the eu's vaccine rollout is intensifying so much so that i did have to check that valdis dombrovskis who i thought was latvian i had to check karen that he is latvian because normally it's the british you're getting the blame here or companies being deemed as british apart from the fact that pascal sorio is french uh, and astrazeneca is uh, as i keep telling people anglo-swedish anyway i did confirm that the trade chief valdis dombrovskis is latvian and he's defending his role in the abandoned vaccine export ban uh, after the eu commission spokesman said responsibility lies with the latvian now mr dombrovskis pushed back insisting the regulation came at the request of many in Brussels. I don't know really what to say about this, apart from they've stopped blaming the British, they've stopped blaming AstraZeneca, and now it appears they're fighting amongst themselves. Well, there was a feeling frenzy in the papers yesterday, wasn't it, trying to park the blame at Ursula von der Leyen's door. Uh, Macron found himself in that circle as well, along with Jens Spahn, the health minister in Germany, who is uh, seen as somewhat as uh, a potential two down the track uh, for higher office in Germany. But uh, very quick moves by von der Leyen to, to park the blame elsewhere, and Dombrovskis' name seemed to have circled. But that said, if you consider his response uh, in the lead-up to uh, some of the problems here, was saying there would be no export curbs on vaccines. He said uh, effectively that uh, at the request with the inputs from relevant cabinets and services at the Commission to address those public health considerations, that uh, there was a change in that policy. So who was at fault here? I think the question still is hanging out there. And it doesn't seem as though uh, von der Leyen is emerging too well from this. But I'll just point out it's a dangerous game that the Europeans are playing because it also stretches to other very key corridors of the world, namely Asia and the Japanese are now talking about the fact that their inoculation program may be impacted. They'll be late to the party as well. And the rollout of uh, these vaccines could be slowed as a result of the European policy, Jeff. I got a complicated and a, a simple answer. And the simple answer is um, collective responsibility. It's a cabinet concept here in the UK. You don't necessarily agree with everything that happens but you are part of the decision-making cabal that uh, announces uh, those decisions. So ultimately, you button your lip and you get on with it. And what we're seeing now, I think, is a breakdown in that idea of collective responsibility. And as you say, finger-pointing taking place. And I, the extraordinary statement that we had yesterday uh, from, uh, I think it was Ursula von der Leyen, where she said, only the Pope is infallible. But the more complicated answer, I think, is one about this political fusion uh, that the EU is um, engaged in at the moment. And this idea that you can pass national decision making up to this supranational body and it will make those decisions to the satisfaction of all parties. And what we've clearly seen right from the beginning when this pandemic emerged and we had all of the problems over national governments deciding to restrict exports of pandemic-related uh, materials uh, and then circling the wagons to protect them from being uh, bought by other countries that were attempting to outbid suppliers. We've had 
this tension between national governments in Europe and their desire to do the best for their citizens and the slow-moving mechanism that is centralised Brussels. And I guess, you know, if you go back to the history of why Britain has had an extensive problem in going down the road here, it's been largely this whole idea of subjugating national decision-making to this supranational body. The progress of political union continues, but I think this, again, has exposed some of the challenges of trying to pass very localised national decision-making up to a higher body. You inevitably end up with all sorts of complications and problems here. And potentially at a national level on the politics, the FD had a terrific report yesterday talking about the fallout potentially first up in Germany, then in France. They were saying that, you know, we've been talking recently about this this change in leadership that's coming and that Ahmed Laschet has seen as the potential next chancellor in Germany, however, too closely aligned to to Mr. Spahn, which means that you may see Marcus Soda, the chief minister of of Bavaria, perhaps as one of the potential candidates. So this is quite key as we talk about future leadership in Germany, but also, too, as we count down to the French election, they're very close is polling up 52 to 48 around Marine Le Pen. And last time around, we saw that nationalistic challenge. There is a sense that there's some embarrassment for the French not coming up with a national well, champion vaccine can of their come. own. And now there's a problem with uh, throwing the lot into the back. You know, I'm not going to say that the news gods aren't giving, but what is Clement Bone on about? I mean, this is a man who's obviously been sent out as the, the terrier or the pit bull from Monsieur Macron and the Elysee Palace, just to go and kind of deflect blame left, right and centre. If we're talking about sensible politicians, it's nice when they talk sensibly as well, and I'm sure he is normally a sensible politician, but to go out and say the UK is taking risks with vaccine, bearing in mind, his population wants the same drug, the same AstraZeneca drug that is actually the mainstay, the workhorse of the British rollout. To say that the British are taking risks with the science and what have you, because we have to, maybe we do have to uh, really push out quickly because we do have a terrible pandemic in the UK. But to say they're taking risks with the science in a country which has one of the highest concerns about uptake of the drug, i.e. France, just seems extraordinary and, and, and is using international politics to deflect from domestic issues as well and domestic concerns. And I just think it's irresponsible telling the British they are taking risks with the science when at the same time expecting your own domestic population to take up the drug in large quantities. There's it just seems extraordinary to me. amount of nationalism in this debate. And, and when you've had countries wasn't. pushing Don't back against economic nationalism yeah. in the past, it's flaring yeah. up on the vaccines. And the British have been as bad about this as anyone. And I would criticise my own government aggressively when I see it. The likes of Gavin Williamson or Matt Hancock are making these ridiculous statements about British jingoism when it comes to this whole thing. But in this case, I think the, the, the criticism are well made. I mean, how dare these people start talking about these risks with science when it's such an important thing? Use the facts base rather than the risks uh, analogy. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.